Effective dramas are full of memorable lines. Here are a few famous movie lines. See if you can recognize the movies from which they come. Here's the first. So let it be written. So let it be done. That's Yul Brenner, of course, from the Ten Commandments. How about this one? Go ahead and make my day. Dirty Harrier, Clint Eastwood. Here's looking at you, kid. Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. I'll be back. Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. To infinity and beyond. Buzz Lightyear in the Toy Story. May the force be with you. Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. I feel the need, the need for speed. Tom Cruise in Top Gun. There's no place like home. That's Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Build it and they will come. That mysterious voice from the wheat fields in the field of dreams. And then there's two lines. I got two lines from the same movie. After all, tomorrow is another day. Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. And then, of course, the last line from that same movie, Rhett Butler, frankly, my dear, I don't give a doggone. Well, whether you're talking movies or plays or real-life dramas, effective stories are full of unforgettable lines, as well as God's original Christmas drama. For God's narrative also packed quotations that we now repeat year after year, generation after generation. Classic lines came from the mouths of angelic messengers and from a little girl named Mary and from oriental wise men. The drama of Christmas wouldn't be complete without the statements that sum up its meaning and clarify its life-changing message. When God, the great director staged the original Christmas drama. He did it right. Nothing in this story happened by accident. Every detail was thought out and planned out, and the same was true with the script. Each word was carefully crafted by the master wordsmith himself, the Holy Spirit. Each line in the drama made a crucial point. This year, we're studying the drama of Christmas Again, our first study two weeks ago was about the cast of Christmas. Last week, we looked at the sets of Christmas. Today, we want to look at the script or the lines of the Christmas drama. You know, for decades, American families have sent Christmas cards during the holiday season. Every year, two billion Christmas cards are mailed to American mailboxes. Another half a billion e-cards are sent over the Internet. In fact, the president alone this year will mail over 40,000 Christmas cards. And guess what? We get to pay the postage. (laughs) I think sending Christmas cards has been such a popular practice because we sense intuitively that Christmas is the perfect time to make a statement. For years, I've had a personal Christmas Eve day tradition. On that day, I get out my phone directories and browse through the names of friends and former acquaintances. I call up folks that I haven't spoken to in a while, and I try to refresh some former relationships. Hey, there is just something about Christmas that makes it the perfect time to make a statement. 
heard of a particular town that had a custom. At Christmas, everyone gave a present to their trash collector. Well, some of the collectors began to expect a gift, and they started taping notes onto the trash cans as kind of a way of reminder. Season's greetings from your trash collector. One man, though, he forgot to respond to his trash collector's greeting card. The day before Christmas, another note was taped to the garbage can. Season's greetings from your trash collector. Second notice. (laughs) Christmas is a good time for making statements. Just so you'll know where I'm headed this morning, I've surveyed the Christmas story and I've lifted out some memorable lines, statements that God has made to us and through us. And by looking at God's Christmas statements, I hope to encourage you to make a few statements of your own to the people that you love this Christmas. Did you hear about the little boy who approached his dad with three pieces of paper in his hand? He held up the first paper and he said, Dad, fax this list to Santa Claus. He set the second paper down in front of his dad and he asked him, he said, will you please email this list to God? But that third piece of paper, he kept clutched in his hand. The little guy gave some clear instructions. He says, and with this list, please, I want to talk to Grandma direct. (laughs) Well, after today's message, I'm trusting that this Christmas you'll want to go And you'll want to talk to some people in your life direct. Hopefully you'll want to make a statement to God. Maybe it's time your wife heard from you a little bit more than a grunt at breakfast or a snore at night. I know you told her you loved her the day you married her, but don't you think it's been a while? Maybe this time you need to tell your wife again how much you care. I'll bet your kids could use a reminder of how much you love them. And you kids, I'm certain your mom and dad could stand to hear a little appreciation from your mouth for all they've done and all they're doing for you. See, for all of us, sometimes the best presents come in the form of heartfelt statements. And Christmas is a time for giving expression to our feelings. We learn that from the... We learn that from the statements God made from the first Christmas, that Christmas statements are important even today. Well, this morning we're looking at the lines of Christmas, seven famous lines from the drama of Christmas. Well, the first statement comes from the mouth of an angel. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, an angel appears to a confused Joseph with an explanation. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Sometimes what we need most is an explanation. Once one of our ushers, he started finding beer cans and empty liquor bottles in the youth pastor's trash can. Roy came to me worried. He said, I think Pastor Jeff has a drinking problem. I assured Roy that the pastor hadn't been snorting up in the church office. Jeff was in charge of picking up the empty cans and bottles off the front lawn, and he happened to be depositing them in his wastebasket in his office. All Roy needed to calm down was an explanation. This was also true of the wife who found $500 cash stuffed in her husband's sock. It was hidden deep in, her, in his chest or drawers. And she assumed the worst. 
When he got home that night, she let him have it with both barrels. She was embarrassed to discover that her husband's stash was money he was saving to buy her a special Christmas present. Often, all we need is an explanation. And this was the case with Joseph. His fiancée was pregnant, and Mary expected him to believe a preposterous story about it all being the work of God. Joseph was plotting how to terminate the betrothal when suddenly an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and provided for him the explanation that he needed. This Christmas might be the perfect time for you to sit down and give someone you love an explanation. You've assumed that your kids understand the reasons for your rules and your concerns, but maybe they really don't. Maybe those rules would be better received if they did. Perhaps your parents need a reminder that you still love them, even though you don't have as much time to see them anymore. Or maybe a smoldering resentment could be doused by giving your friend an explanation for your perceived slight or your odd actions. The angels explained to Joseph that Mary's story was true. The Holy Spirit had overshadowed the young girl. The child had been sired by the power of God. I'm sure God's explanation didn't answer all of Joseph's questions, but it let him know Mary had been faithful to him and that God loved them. And by choosing Joseph to rear his son, God had bestowed on him a great honor. An explanation might not satisfy all the objections, but at least it's an effort to foster peace and love and understanding. As with Joseph, often an explanation is the difference between people giving up and going on. But also notice the Christmas statement made by the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. For when they arrive in Israel, they figure surely the local authorities will know about the important birth of the promised king. They come to King Herod and they inquire of him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The angel's words to Joseph were a calming explanation, but these words are a rousing declaration. These wise men have traveled over high mountains, across steep valleys, through rugged terrain, from deep within the Oriental East to the shores of the burgeoning West, and all for one reason. They want to worship the newborn king. This Christmas, maybe it's time for you to come out with a declaration of your own. Stand up and make a definite statement to God, to your family, to your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, to the whole world for that matter, that you are going to worship Jesus. There are wives here today who have been praying for years to hear their husbands say, this Christmas, we're going to worship Jesus. There are kids who would love to hear their parents tell them, hey, we've been majoring on the minors this year. We're going to worship Jesus. I'm sure there are parents who would jump for joy to hear their kids say, Mom, Dad, I'm tired of being so selfish. This year, I just want to worship Jesus. And there is a Father in heaven who loves you so much. He is sitting on the edge of his seat. His ear is bent toward earth, waiting to hear some awakened heart speak up in faith and make the declaration, I have come to worship Jesus. To make that kind of statement may be the best Christmas present you give. Let me share you, with you an insight that I gleaned from the wise men's declaration. They say, we have come to worship him. 
To worship Jesus, you have to come to Him. You have to make a move toward God. You come by leaving where you're at and getting to where He is. Real worship meets the Lord on His terms. Singer Susan Ashton wrote a song that was popular years ago. It contained a line addressed to God. She sang, I can't go with you and stay where I'm at, so you move me. Understand, this is the prerequisite for worship. I can't follow Jesus and stay where I am. And there's no better time than at Christmas to make a bold move toward Jesus, to firmly declare that you're willing to come to him on his terms, that you're willing to bend your will and open your heart and worship the king. Christmas is a good time to make that statement. Well, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, an angel speaks again. Another statement is made, but this time it's to Mary, and the angel delivers to her a word of expectation. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel fills Mary's imagination with wonder. He gives her a glimpse of who her son will be, and the first clue to his identity, his destiny, comes from his name, Jesus. I've been keeping a list of entrepreneurs who have devised clever names for their companies. Names that reveal the nature of their business in catchy ways. For example, there's an Indian fast food restaurant in New York City called Curry in a Hurry. That's kind of fun. How about the store in Alameda, California that sells maternity clothes? It's called Fashion After Passion. A hairstyling salon in Dumas, Texas goes by the name Curl Up and Die. A portable toilet company in Parlin, New Jersey is called Johnny on the Spot. There's a computer repair shop called Bits and PCs. Bits and pieces, PC, you get it, you get it. And lastly, how about the hot dog stand in Boulder, Colorado that goes by the name Mustard's Last Stand. God gave to his son a name that communicated in a nutshell the nature of his business. The Greek name Jesus is a translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. It means Yahweh, God, is salvation. This is why the angel declared to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. If you have any doubts whatsoever to the business that Jesus is in, lay them to rest. He is in the business of forgiveness. He loves us. And Jesus is dying to prove it. If there's a tree in heaven, he's carved your name in its trunk. If God has a refrigerator, your photo is right there, taped to the refrigerator. Jesus loves you, and he'll wash away your sin if you'll just ask him. If you'll lay aside your agenda and your demands and come to him, and worship. But the angel's statement to Mary provided her even loftier aspirations for her son. He said of Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is both the offspring of God and the descendant of David. And that combination makes him the king who will rule over God's forever kingdom. No mother has ever had a greater reason to have high expectations for her son. God not only calmed the fears of Joseph and Mary with an explanation of what had happened, but he piqued their expectation by giving them a vision of who this child would become. And here is the lesson for us. God is teaching us that there is power in good and godly expectations. I'm sure over the years, Joseph and Mary never lost sight of their child's true identity and ultimate mission. No doubt when changing diapers or warming up bottles or cleaning skint knees, they would think back to the angel's statement of explanation and expectation and recall how strategic their parenting really was. They had a special mission. Hey, they were tending to a special child. This Christmas, you could make a vital statement by sitting down and refocusing on the expectations God has put in your heart for you and your family. So often we get caught up in the daily grind and we forget the impact of our parenting or of our witness or of our service or even of the influence of our church. Little acts of daily sacrifice add up. It's how God changes the world. We need reminders that God has designed us for eternal purposes, even in our daily tasks and duties. There's more to our lives than just trying to find a parking space at a crowded shopping mall. God is using us for something special. Hey, we'll endure difficulties. We'll press on when the road gets tough, only when we recall where the road leads. God desires for our lives to count for eternity. God has great expectations. For each of us. Speaking of soul searching lines, to me, Luke chapter 1, verse 38 is the most challenging of all the lines in the Christmas script. This time it's Mary who makes a bold statement. She surrenders to God's will when she says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Here is a statement of dedication. Imagine the curveball that God threw Mary. Here's a 15, 16-year-old girl engaged to be married. Her hopes and dreams are all planned out. When suddenly news breaks that irreversibly changes the trajectory of her life. Mary could have questioned the will of God. She could have bucked at obedience, but she does neither. There's not the slightest squirm in Mary's response. As soon as God's will is revealed, she gives it all up. She lays it all down. She surrenders all her hopes and dreams and plans and ambitions to the good pleasure of God. And do I really need to draw an application for us? Are we as ready and as willing to let God have his way with us, even if it reverses or spoils our plans? Author John Powell, he recounts the care he gave his elderly mother, Her home in Chicago included a staircase, and John would have to carry her up and down that staircase. But on occasion, Mom would grab the banister and refuse to turn loose. When she did, John would say, 
Mama, let go of the banister. We can't move. She'd look up and she'd confess, but I'm afraid you'll drop me. John would reply, okay, Mama, I'm going to drop you right now. When I count to three, I'm going to drop you. And, of course, Mom would let go of the banister and he'd be able to move a few more steps up the staircase until she grabbed hold again. John Powell, he sums up his story. This is, in microcosm, my interaction with God. I'm hanging on to the banisters of life. I'm hanging on to these little things that make me feel secure. But God loves me more than I love my little mother, and God will never let me come to any harm. God knows where we're going. You see, Mary turned loose of the banister. Though God was taking her in a direction she didn't understand, she was confident that he would never drop her. Is your faith strong enough to turn loose of the old supports and surrender to God's will for your life? Don't you know that he loves you? Don't you know that God has big, strong arms? That he's never been guilty of a drop? If you're not growing, if you're not on the move spiritually, it's probably because you've yielded to your fears and you're clutching on to one of these banisters of life. Hey, the most important statement any of us can make this Christmas is to surrender to God's will. Let it be to me, Lord, according to your will. This Christmas, may we all make a renewed statement of dedication to God. Then there's another statement that falls from the lips of Mary. It's an utterance of praise and adoration. Bible scholars call it by a special name, Mary's Magnificat. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55 is Mary's song. It goes like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Some of the early missionaries to India were warned by William Temple not to read Mary's song of praise in public. For they knew that the authorities and that the social order that supported those authorities would be threatened by its contents. The missionary knew that the words he has scattered the proud. He has put down the mighty. He has exalted the lowly. These words would be viewed as inflammatory, even treasonous. Hey, real praise, true adoration is revolutionary. For it recognizes that with the coming of the Messiah, it is no longer business as usual on planet earth. Mary's song makes it clear that the Son of God will one day upset the apple cart, that he'll turn the establishment on its ear, that he'll put down the mighty men and exalt the humble and scatter the proud and lift up the lowly and fill the hungry with good things. See, Christmas makes a statement. Don't revolt against God. Be a revolutionary for God. 
Mary's song of pure praise makes a radical statement wherever it's played. You know, at Christmas time, I often mourn the commercialization that dominates American life. The song of Mary, Mary's praise seems to get drowned out by the shopping jingles. And we assume that the commercialization of Christmas is a modern malady. Actually, it's been going on for a long, long time. In the 1890s, a Christian group wanted to publish a book of favorite hymns, but they lacked the funds. A company, Beecham's Pharmaceuticals, agreed to help the church print their hymnal. But unbeknownst to them, Beecham slipped in a little free advertising. When Christmas rolled around and the church sang the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, they noticed a change in the lyrics. The songbooks now read, Hark the herald angels sing, Beecham's pills are just the thing. Peace on earth and mercy mild, two for man and one for child. The advertisers strike again. My point, and I believe Mary's point, is that Jesus should be getting all the free advertising at Christmas time. Christmas is a good time to stand up in the midst of your world, in the midst of this world of crass commercialization and make a statement of pure praise and adoration toward God. Our last two lines in the Christmas script were uttered by angels over the shepherd's fields on the outskirts of a little Jewish town known as Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 records the angel of the Lord as he, as he confronts and comforts the stunned shepherds. He says, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For it is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice the news they received. They considered good news. The angel labeled it good tidings of great joy. And that point is not to be taken for granted. For if God had not calmed our fears... We would have had reason to be leery of his arrival. What if God had come to get even with us? What if God had come to punish mankind? Surely he had just cause. But no. First words out of the angel's mouth are relax. Chill out. Christmas is a time for comfort and affirmation, not condemnation. God is angry at our sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't love the sinner. He does. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey, he tells the story of Mel White. At one time, Mel traveled in conservative Christian circles. He helped write books for popular Christian speakers like Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell. That ended, though, when Mel came out as homosexual. Some Christians sent Mel hate letters. They called him awful names. They labeled him an abomination. A reporter traveled to Mel's home, home where he grew up, and he interviewed his Christian parents. Mel's mother was asked the question, do you view your son as an abomination? This godly mother, who would have never condoned her son's sinful lifestyle, replied, as only a mom can. She said, well, he may be an abomination, but he's still my pride and joy. I read that and I thought, what a blessed mixture of hate for the sin, yet love for the sinner. And this is how God treats us. He does hate our sin, 
But that doesn't lessen his love for us. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sin. God's buried the hatchet. His thoughts toward us are now of love and forgiveness. And if we'll accept it, he'll enter our lives and he'll save us from our sin. That's why Christmas is a reason to rejoice. It's time to affirm our love to the people in our lives who are coming up short of our expectations, maybe even living outside of God's will. Perhaps there's a fellow sinner living near you who's been blatant about their wicked lifestyle. And in your interaction with them, you've had to take a stand for what is true. As a result, it's put a strain on your relationship. You love that person, but you can't just stand by and watch them mock what you know is true and ridicule who you know is God. You've taken an important stand. But maybe this Christmas, it's time to go back to that person and also make a statement of affirmation. Why not let that person know that despite what they've done, God still loves them, and so do you. Jesus came to save sinners, not condemn them. We should always remember that. The coming of Christ into the world. The Christmas message is summarized by the angels as good tidings of great joy. I believe Christmas is the perfect time to affirm God's great love to even the unlovable. Well, there's a final statement made by the angels, this time by a host of angels. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, an angelic chorus serenades the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Here is a word of anticipation. Peace is coming. Goodwill is on the way. Good times are about to roll. But of course, 2,000 years later, this world is still the same conflict-ridden place the shepherds experienced. Where is this peace on earth and this goodwill toward men? Reminds me of the family that celebrated Christmas with an Advent candle. You know, four candles representing the spirit of Christmas. Hope and love and peace and joy. Each week prior to Christmas, they lit a different candle and they recalled the tradition and the symbolism. Well, finally, the time came to light the fourth candle. The father asked his very talkative teenage daughter to recount what the four candles represented. Well, she spit out the first three pretty easily. Hope, love, peace. But she stumbled over the meaning of the fourth candle. It was definitely a rare occasion whenever this young lady ever was at a loss for words. Still groping for the answer, her little brother jumped in. All of a sudden, he shouted, hope, love, peace, and quiet. <laughs> I laugh whenever I see one of those bumper stickers that asks me to visualize world peace. I'm not that ambitious. Hey, someone wants world peace when I can't even get, get, even, I can't even get a little peace and quiet in the world. God's promise of peace and goodwill seems as far-fetched today as when first uttered by the angels. We need to realize that the Christmas drama conveyed hope. It's not an instant cure-all. Understand, Christmas is not about harvesting a crop. It's about planting a seed. It's not the culmination of change, but the genesis of changes yet to come. The message of Christmas is that peace on earth and goodwill toward men are on the way. In his own time, in his own way, the Savior will bring it to pass. 
Christmas is intended to stir up hope and faith in the meantime. There was a rich, white South African who repented of his racism. And he offered help to the poor black village of Doshini. He promised earth-moving equipment so that the village could build a dam that would supply year-round water and irrigation. With this new dam, the townsfolk could raise cattle and they could provide food and milk for their kids. No longer would their young have to move to the cities to find work. And at the mere mention of this man's name, there was joy. Singing and dancing were in the streets of Doshini. As a resident said, although nothing has happened yet, it's as if it had. Something is here already. And of course, that was hope. Hope had come to this impoverished town. You see, on the day this baby was born in Bethlehem, in a sense, nothing had changed. An evil King Herod still sat on the throne. Wicked men continued having their way. Israel remained under the Roman occupation. But in another sense, everything changed. Christmas is evidence that a better world is on the way. The king has come. Hope has been born. A new world is now visible, if only in a baby. And because of Jesus' grand arrival, the future is forever altered. Just his name should cause singing and dancing in our hearts. And since Christmas is a statement of hope and anticipation, this year, why not you give hope for Christmas? None of us have the resources to solve the totality of even one person's troubles, let alone the problems of our community or our county. But we all can sow hope. We can all act in loving and in sharing ways. We can show this hope-starved world around us that Jesus makes a better life. We can do that. We can sow seeds. Well, all the lines of Christmas, memorable, unforgettable statements of explanation, declaration, expectation, dedication, adoration, Affirmation and anticipation, I think it's cause for a celebration. Why don't we call it Christmas? This Christmas, don't let the season slip by without making a statement. You could utter a line that would be unforgettable in the mind of someone you love. An explanation to your spouse or your child a declaration to your family or your friends or your workplace, an expectation of divine purpose that perhaps you've forgotten, a dedication to God, an adoration of God, an affirmation of the love of God to a person who needs to hear it, even anticipation of a better day to a person struggling just to make it through another day. Your statement might be just the right line for the script that God is writing in that person's life this Christmas. You can make memorable statements this year, ones that will bring good tidings of great joy to the people around you and ones that will honor and glorify God.